Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. And on this week's episode, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Matt Stainer. Give you a little bit of background on who Matt is. Matt's a cognitive scientist working at Griffith University. He completed his PhD in cognitive psychology at the University of Dundee in Scotland before taking postdoctoral positions at the University of Melbourne and the University of Aberdeen. He is broadly interested in studying cognitive processes in the wild and has applied his research skills to understand questions like how CCTV operators manage complex control rooms, how individuals drive under the influence, how elite athletes reach peak performance, and how emergency responders make medical decisions. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hey, John, how's it going? Really, really good, Matt. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule. Sit down, chat with me, mate. Uh, really looking forward to this one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've gone back and listened to a few of yours and um, some really interesting people and hopefully uh, I can uh, say some things that might be of interest to some people. But yeah, we'll see how we go. Nah, I'm sure, mate. Uh, looking at some of your research, dude, I'm looking forward to diving into that and having some good ch- chats around that, dude. And before we get into that, I just want to say a quick uh, shout out and thank you to you, Sandy McQuarrie, for putting us in touch with each other as well. Uh, former guest and a fellow colleague, I believe, at Griffith as well. Yeah, Sandy's here. Uh, Andy Bell, I think, has been on your podcast as well. Yep. So, um, yeah, you've, you've come highly recommended from some uh, some good people who I trust. So, yeah, it's always always a good sign. Always a good sign, mate. Always a good sign. Anyway, uh, I mean, we've had the opportunity, Matt, to chat a little bit off air and get to know each other a bit, dude, and just what you've done with your career so far. But for anyone who hasn't come across you, you know, can you just tell us a little bit about where your career started out and where you're currently at? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, look, I started out, um, went to university in uh, Abertay in Dundee. So I wanted to go and be a forensic psychologist. I wanted to go and work with psychopaths. That was my goal. Um, went to university there, found out psychopaths scared me. Um, so it probably wasn't going to be a great career choice. Um, and yeah, one of, uh, one of my lecturers there, uh, Dr. Ken Scott Brown, who's a fellow Aberdonian, um, spoke to, showed us a video of the uh, people playing basketball and then the gorilla walks through halfway through. It's an inattentional blindness paradigm. Um, and I didn't see the gorilla and uh, I was sort of stunned that I didn't. It was a really sort of um, challenging moment for me where I kind of came to realize maybe I didn't understand as much as I thought I did about uh, the way that vision and visual perception works. Um, and then got to talking to Ken afterwards and um, started doing some research with him in CCTV surveillance, trying to understand how do people you know, detect things in really complex environments. So when you've got you know, a Dundee city center control room and you've got all these cameras uh, and you've got to try and find fights on a Friday night. Um, where do you look? Where do you try and find that stuff? Um, went on to go into a PhD across the city in Dundee uh, with Dr. Ben, uh, Professor Ben Tatler. Um, and then at the end of that, did that horrible sort of, what am I going to do next? Um, had a four month old child. So of course did the easy thing, which was to move all the way across the world uh, to Melbourne to go and do a postdoc there. Um, working in an optometry department, um, doing some stuff on decision-making and eye movements. Um, And then after that, uh, Aberdeen's going to work with uh, Ben Tatler when he was was there. Uh, And then a few couple of years later, um, my wife was actually offered a a job in Gold Coast. So I came out here and was stay-at-home dad for about four months, which was probably one of the best times of my life. Um, Just sort of hanging out down the beach and everything. And then now I'm working as a lecturer at Griffith University, um, in the School of Applied Psychology, uh, doing a bit of teaching in research methods and stats, and then uh, getting to do some some cool research in um, you know, visual perception and decision making um, in lots of different areas. That's pretty cool, mate. That's a cool background. And then obviously, 
being up the road here in Aberdeen, uh, very close proximity, and obviously you've you've done uh, some work at Aberdeen Uni as well. So it's it's cool to hear that common connection there as well, mate. And it's great to see someone who's made the the jump from the Arctic North up here in Scotland over to Australia. Twice, yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's it's an interesting one. I think um, I always tell my PhD students that if you want to be in academia, being able to move and sort of being uh able to go and have those adventures is is amazing it's kind of scary but um you know it, it, you learn so much from being in different places working in different labs um just seeing people work so yeah it's been it's been good but i'm not desperate to do another big move i think it's been uh it, you know we we keep sort of we, we've, we've done it twice and i think that's probably enough quite like to stay here for a while now i guess no, I mean, you're in a beautiful part of the world, mate, so I can understand your, your reluctance to leave there, dude. Um, I mean, it's really interesting. You were saying there just for, I believe it was your, your bachelor's, your undergraduate um, degree, you were saying about that video of the basketball uh, being passed around the grill and walking through. I've seen that video as well, mate, and it is an interesting one how many folk just do not see that grill at all and just so focused on like the number of passes that are taking place. Oh, look, I mean... Uh, the original sort of Simon Dan Simon's paper showed that about fifty percent of people miss it, um, and and I, I I sort of wonder I think that was a sliding doors moment in my life is I think if I'd seen it um, I'd probably be doing something completely different with my life but the fact that I didn't see it and it affected me so much because I was so surprised um, it, it really drove me to sort of want to understand why you know why doesn't vision work how you feel it does you know we've got this this impression of the world being really rich and you know vision being like a video camera that's always recording. Um, we pick up everything with equal clarity and, and it simply isn't the case. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, the fact that it, it surprised me so much and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in that. There were studies done on um, things like change blindness, blindness, where people are, are just so unaware of uh, how much of the world they actually miss because we fill it in. We kind of fill it in with our brains or we uh, just have this belief that everything is that we were aware of everything at all times. Um, showing those demonstrations of when when vision fails can be really compelling um, and, and really uh, kind of makes you question your own uh, sense of awareness, I guess. Okay. That's interesting, mate. And I mean, it, it, it's such an interesting area to see and see how that's developing as well. So I'm really interested to dive into some of the research stuff you've done on this as well. And just, you know, like being able to process large amounts of information coming through from a visual perspective, as you're saying, like with regards to uh, people operating within control rooms and stuff like that as well. So, I mean, on that, Mac, you just talked to us a little bit more about, you know, where your research, where your research started out with regards to just, you know, diving into your, your, your PhD and your postdoc sort of work as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, after I went to go and speak to, uh, to, to Dr. Ken Scott Brown, he, he talked to me about, said, well, if you, you find the, the gorilla hard to find on this screen, well, you now imagine if you're in a, in a room which has got, you know, 40, 50, 60 screens and your task is to try and find stuff and you, you don't know what you're looking for. Um, but you know that there's 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 something there. So I, I became really interested in that challenge of how do you manage multiple complex uh, display rooms? Um, and yeah, we went in, did sort of a combination of things. You know, my, my research has always really appreciated the the dynamics of having really controlled lab-based studies where you can really pick apart behavior, but also trying to understand stuff uh, and behavior in the natural environment. So. We, uh, we did some studies where we had people in, sat in a lab looking at multiple screens on a computer trying to detect things. Uh, and then we also had people wearing mobile eye trackers in a real police control room. So um, trying to understand 
you know, how does this behavior that we might be able to observe in simple settings, how does it upscale to much more complicated real world scenarios? Um, in the control rooms, we found some really interesting things where we found the operators um, just seem to show this appreciation that there's just too much information to the process at, at one time. Um, and, you know, that's in, in the control room, but also kind of that paradigm lends itself to lots of different scenarios. Um, and we found the important thing really is that if you have too much information, it's about your ability to select information in an in a almost tactical way. So what we'd see is that the operators, uh, rather than try and manage everything on the big display room, uh, display wall behind them, um, is that they would bring things to a smaller screen so that they could actually try and process things in a more serial way. Um, and that was strategic because that they would pick different parts of the city in different parts of the day. So, you know, in, in the day you pick city center where you've got um, shops and high streets and things like that. Whereas in the evening, it would be the nightclubs and um, the sort of pub districts and things. Uh, so, so really starting to get at the idea of, well, if you've got too much information, how do you process it? And particularly, how do you pick what's important for you? Um, and, you know, the, the operators there seem to just have this almost probabilistic map of their environment of where is stuff going to happen and when is it going to happen? And they can use that to guide their behavior a little bit. So, um, you know, I started out really with these ideas of what do you do if there's too much information and how do you go about selecting um, almost tactically from your environment? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you say there about too much information there, Matt. What would you say for individuals who are working in these environments? Where's that threshold limit? And, you know, what, what does this actually look like with regards to, you know, there's too much information? Like how many screens are we talking about or, you know, individuals within control rooms actually looking over? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really good question. And I think um, my answer at the time would have probably been, you know, oh, maybe about between maybe about four screens or something is probably what you can monitor. Um, but as I've kind of gone through my career, I've sort of started to realize the, the more nuanced nature of it really is that I think actually your ability to process cognitive load is not really just dependent on the amount of information, but it also kind of matters uh, when you have, you know, when you're tired, when you're stressed, uh, you know, how much movement and information there is in the screen. Certainly watching, uh, you know, Dundee city center in the middle of the day, um, there's people everywhere. So there's kind of a lot of movement on those screens. Whereas in the evenings, um, the movement is sort of condensed more to a few separate areas, um, but there's a lot of people in those screens. So I think, um, you know, we, we wrote a paper a few years ago talking about really it's about the amount of information, not necessarily just the amount of screens. So if you've got four screens, but with not much going on, that might not be as much load as one screen with lots and lots of stuff happening in it. So, um, you know, I think there, there, there are these factors about the task um, and about the individual and their state as well of, you know, are they stressed? Are they tired? Um, are they dehydrated? Um, those things probably matter. Um, and then there probably are individual different skills as well as that you've got some people, um, we, we wrote a paper a few years ago, looking at detecting fights in CCTV and found that individuals who have slightly higher levels of anxiety, so nothing clinical, but, um, high levels of anxiety, maybe more geared to finding threat. That's something that we've known for a while now. Um, but if you apply that in CCTV, those individuals who show slightly elevated low, uh, levels of, um, of, of trait anxiety can actually detect fights earlier than those who have lower levels. Um, and that might tell us something about, well, some individuals may be better at these kind of tasks and maybe those are the kind of things for selection in those types of jobs. That's an interesting one. I mean, that's uh, something I'd like to unpack a little bit more there, Max. Obviously, you mentioned about 
individual um, traits in there. So obviously people who have maybe, you know, higher levels of anxiety, you're saying about, you know, their, their, their current, um, current state of, you know, if they're dehydrated, they're, they're fatigued or you know, tired and how that impacts on it as well. So I ask, you know, whatever, whatever factors you typically see within that, you know, influence, influence in operators, you know, visual processing of um, situations, are, are they looking for, is it is it pattern recognition, you know, within to like you know body language within certain groups? Is it looking at abnormalities in, um, you know, on pattern sort of say like the, the daytime feed you're looking at there? If everyone else is walking, are you looking for people who are running who could be your, your you know your stereotypical shoplifter that quickly lets you zone in on that? You know, what what would you say are some of the main factors individuals are using, and do you typically see a difference between you know? Uh, novice practitioners versus you know more experienced practitioners on the job and their ability to filter those tasks yeah ab absolutely i think um you know there's there's been some work done looking at who who makes a good operate these things um so this was um this was this is some work by some some other researchers uh who I'm, I'm blanking on the name slightly um but uh what they what they found is that actually like police officers might be good at this task um, and I think part of the the skill there might be in your ability to uh, understand re relationships like social relationships from things like body language um, I think being able to tell certainly my experiences of uh, being in control rooms has been your ability to tell the difference between two you know two guys just messing around just you know kind of you know, play fighting almost um, versus two people who are actually about to go for a massive fight. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes the, you know, the, the, the gesturing of two kind of, you know, gorilla males banging their chests, trying to make sure, trying to spook each other out. They don't really want to fight, but they just want to make a big show of it and make the other one back down. Um, that seems to kind of be a little bit, that's easy to pick up, but probably isn't going to go anywhere. And the tougher things are the ones where it's the more subtle one. It's the quiet guy who stood there looking hungry. Um, and the operators pick up on that stuff. You know, I was in the control room with, with operators and they would say, that's about to kick off in that camera. And I'm busy watching something else, which I think is really interesting. Either like a big group of people or oh, in Dundee, you got these massive seagulls that fly in front of the cameras and they just <laughs> sit there, which always amuse me a little bit too much. Um, but yeah, they, they would call it and they'd sort of spot it early. And I think it's that ability to um, really, you know, well, with situational awareness, right? It's the ability to predict future states. And I think your ability to take the relationship between people you can observe in their body language and project that into the future is something that I think is a real specialist skill. Um, I'm sure some of it develops through experience. I'm sure some people are just naturally better um, at telling the way that behavior is going to play out. Um, but certainly a really important thing for that component of the task. And, you know, like I've looked a lot at fights in CCTV because it's a nice big event happening, but obviously there's so many different facets of that task that you could be engaged in. It's, you know, searching for people who are wanted for various um, crimes or, you know, following people through a city or chasing cars or, you know, checking up on, on various things. So com complex task. Um, but that's certainly one of the areas I think you would really benefit from having that skill set. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how are you finding now then in terms of application of research, you're saying there about, you know, um, threshold limits of information coming in and you know key character traits or um performance traits within individuals working in these control rooms how's that impacting real world uh, organizational recruitment and training yeah look and i think um 
aviation is one of those areas where people are way ahead of everyone else because they've been doing, you know, anything human factors, the aviation have been doing for a lot longer than everyone else. So they're really interested in recruitment in terms of, you know, their air traffic control rooms. Um, one of my collaborators, uh, Christine Boke Hodgson, does a lot of really nice space trying to understand how people function best in those complex control rooms. So we, we mm-hmm. met when I came out here and we started doing some work together. Um, so, yeah, look, I think th- there is definitely a scope for that type of type of thing. But um, one thing that this has really shown me is, uh, you know, is just when you have these complex environments, uh, the importance of of strategic selection of thing of, of, of elements of your environment because i think if you you know if you're just hoping you're going to p- passively pick up on cues it's never really going to going to work you're not going to be sort of just you know, th- things sometimes feel instinctive to to individuals but really strategic uh strategies can be really really useful in terms of getting people the information that they need to quickly to be able to make a decision in an environment so yeah you know i started in surveillance but i've applied that in a lot of different ways because i think those principles of knowing what's important in an environment and using that to uh, make a decision is just, you know, it's a, it's a ubiquitous skill. Where, where are we seeing that starting to expand out? You mentioned there about aviation's being, you know, like years ahead with regards to the human factor side of things as well. You know, where, where, whatever areas do we see this typically starting to develop into as well there, Matt? Yeah, well, look, I think, um, you know, certainly defense and military are very interested in these types of things as well. Um, but I guess all across the tactical space and the emergency response space so um you know uh, you know how we made our connection through uh you know dr sandy macquarie uh, certainly the the group i'm working with in paramedicine um has been really really interesting because you just find the same sorts of problems and the same sorts of challenges um across all these different areas mm-hmm. i've been really lucky because magpie i like doing lots of different stuff and being involved in lots of different projects and the fact that what i am interested in and the methods that i use particularly eye tracking lends itself so well to asking lots of different questions. Um, one of the areas I think that's particularly useful there is that um, if we want to understand where people look and how they select information from their environments is asking people is not a good way of getting at that. As you can ask people what they do and they don't really give you a good description. Um, Michael Land and Peter McLeod did a study looking at cricket batsmen uh, and they looked at where expert and novice batsmen look when they're trying to play a um, medium paced ball um and what they found is if you ask them where they look is that they, they both groups will tell you that they track the ball is that they watch the ball keep your eye on the ball that's the kind of classic coaches coaches description when you actually see what the experts do though is that they don't keep their eye on the ball is that they make an anticipatory movement ahead of where the ball's going to be because it moves too fast you know you're not really able to track that quickly so your best strategy is to make a prediction about where the ball is going to bounce get your eyes there and then you have a better um a bit ability to shape your shots to play that shot as well so it's a really nice instance of like expert behavior that is not necessarily uh in the awareness of the expert themselves they can't describe those types of things um i found some really interesting thing working with the paramedics as well is that you get similar types of thing um we recently sent in uh, an expert and a novice paramedic pairs into a really high fidelity simulation uh they were sat in a ambulance beforehand and they were discussing what they were going to do when they got in there um, and they said, right, first of all, we're going to go check everything safe. We're going to do this and they go through their sequence of, of what they're going to do on their primary survey. Um, both teams did it. The experts ran in. They went, had to go through this corridor with these rooms on the side. Uh, you could see from the eye tracking that the experts went in. They looked in every single room. They sort of scanned their environment, checked everything was safe. 
Um, there was a guy who was kind of sat to the side. They checked to see whether or not they believed he was a threat. Um, the novices, they said, yeah, we're going to go in and we're going to check everything safe. They just marched down that corridor, completely ignored their surroundings. And afterwards, we showed the guy his eye tracking back to him. He was stunned. He couldn't believe he'd done it because he really didn't know he hadn't done that bit of the task. He thought he looked everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, we, we see that a lot in the sort of safety space and the human faculty spaces. Um, you know, people don't really have a good awareness of where they look. And sometimes they over or underestimate what mm -hmm. they do. Um, and that's, you know, really where you start to think errors might be sinking in. Um, you see it in aviation, you know, a lot of the errors are, you know, look, but don't see errors. They sort of, they're, they're scanning around and they're either not looking at the thing they should be looking at and they think they are, um, or they're habitually moving their eyes there, but not really processing the information. So eye tracking can give us some really, really nice insights into those processes, particularly about what are you actively doing? Where are you looking? But, you know, then pairing that up with behavior of are you processing what is your you're looking at that there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's really interesting to say that about the um, difference between, um, you know, novice and more experienced paramedics there and just that eye track movement as well. I'd be really interested to see, especially in a high fidelity situation like that, of just biological markers as well. Like, you know, for the novices or a greater adrenaline dump or, you know, cortisol uh, spike within them, like, oh, crap, I've got to get in there quicker, whereas probably the experienced guy is a bit more cool, calm, collected, walking down that corridor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so that's where really um, Sandy's expertise comes in. So Sandy does a lot of the physiological measurement. So uh -huh. we've been we've been looking at those patterns of behavior when you have, you know, high stress. And then where do you see changes in eye, in eye movements, for example? Um, and, and, you know, you start to see these these markers of um, tunnel vision, for example. So individuals will tell you, uh, you know, I've heard lots of people talk differently about tunnel vision. Some people talk about it as a really useful thing and they talk about it as their ability to block out extraneous information. So, you know, paramedicines are really, really interesting area to work in because they often turn up to, to, to places with limited information or no information or information. They don't really know what they're going into. So their first task is almost to make sense of everything. And, you know, it could be, is that person over there relevant? Is that, you know, so it's, a, it's almost an iterative decision making of what in my environment is really worth paying attention to. Um, and then I think, you know, you want to start to limit your information. So going back to the ideas of cognitive overload and too much information is limit your set size, almost if we go back to classic cog psych terms, limit your um, amount of information you're trying to handle to things that you think are important. Now, I've had people talk about tunnel vision in really positive and negative ways. So some people say, oh, well, I used my tunnel vision to narrow down what I was going to be interested in. And then I blocked out the disco lights and the, the music and everything like that, or the people screaming over there, I just ignored them. Um, and then I hear other people talking about tunnel vision in a problematic way in that they just kind of start to fail to pick up on other things that they should be picking up on. Um, they become so fixated on one certain area that they start to neglect other important things. Um, and we see that with, particularly with novices, is when they're a bit stressed, when the adrenaline's going, when their heart's racing and they're starting to show those, those indicators of stress. Um, that's when they start to pick up on, um, they start to focus too much on one area. So for example, focus on a re-traumatic uh, leg break where the bone's coming up through the skin and everything like that. They'll focus on that at the expense of more life-threatening uh, components of the task so actually the broken leg is is horrific but it's not going to kill you it's actually the other things that are more dangerous um, but you combine stress 
and then start to be able to look at where people are looking, it really gives you a marker of their tunnel vision and sort of, you know, what they're really doing there. So, um, you know, definitely combining those different metrics um, is really useful. And, and I'm, I'm lucky because I think, uh, you know, at Griffith where I'm working at the moment, um, I, every day I meet someone who knows cooler stuff than me, I think. So, I, you know, I, I sort of meet someone who does physiological measurement. I meet someone who does fatigue. Uh, I meet someone who's got a driving simulator and, you know, we just we work together. I think that's a really nice nature of uh, a good marker of academia is when you've got people who know a lot more about something than you do and you can just work together and sort of find those, you know, Venn diagram points where you kind of can meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the work I've been doing with paramedicine has been a really nice example of that. I mean, that sounds awesome, dude. And I know, like, like you said, the, there's the positives and the negatives to that tunnel vision sort of side of things as well. I know from my experience within uh, sport, working with rugby, you know, especially some of the younger guys, um, just for the evasion and, you know, skill tactics, they do tend to fall into more of the negative side of things of that tunnel vision of like, all right, I'm going to, this is going to be my channel I'm going to run and, you know, this is where I'm going to get to to try and score my try. But they end up getting shut down just because they end up in a small space. And if they'd taken that broader view and not being so condensed down in tunnel vision, you could have seen more options on the field of play, which is huge. Oh, absolutely. I mean, sport is a, you know, a really nice application of the kind of the noisy environment. And you need to know what's really important to pick up on. Um, I've got an honor student this year who's a player for the Brisbane Broncos oh, wow. um, for the women's team. And she uh, she's fantastic. She was down at the Women's State of Origin the other week um and she's looking at visual selection and stress in uh, rugby players trying to understand well you know if you're stressed uh, how do your decisions pair up with the information that you're seeking and do you start to see those changes when people are feeling a little bit um you know the heart's racing does expertise influence those types of things as well if we look at a bunch of expert you know um, elite level athletes do they show different signs of um situational awareness different signs of visual selection um so yeah some some really exciting stuff there uh yeah like i say I'm, I'm i'm lucky i get to do lots of cool stuff which uh keeps me very interested definitely man definitely it sounds like an awesome environment to be a part of dude i know you've, you've mentioned there about some of the work you're doing alongside sandy and andy as well with regards to the paramedicine side of things and um you're, you've got your honor student there who's looking into rugby um where, where overall would you say in terms of the the research are you starting to go next Matt what are you starting to look into you know and where you're starting to focus your research uh, elements into yeah so look I think um you know broadly sticking along those themes of uh how do people seek information to make the best decisions um and trying to apply that in ways that are going to um, I want to do something good and I want to do something that's actually kind of going to have real practical applications. Now, I think um, in academia, we sometimes become either sort of entrenched in that really sort of uh, lab-based experimental paradigm or we become really entrenched in that observational thing as I really want to swing between those worlds and use what we learn in the lab to try and inform real practical applied stuff. Um, so, so my goal is to try and try and work in that space uh, and try and find different ways we can start to use techniques like eye tracking, like stress measurement, um, like fatigue measurement to try and uh, improve people's performance. Now that can be in paramedicine. We've got quite a few projects coming up there um, with some, some really good groups, including tactical medics. So looking at how people, you know, perform medical uh, emergency medicine delivery, but they also have that kind of tactical overlay as well as they've got other things they need to do whilst they're thinking about those things um also we have some work looking at emergency response driving so you know i think i'm 
you know, every, every time I talk to the paramedics, I come up with new ideas and new bits of the task. I'm like, oh, it'd be really interesting to know what happens there. Um, so, you know, we've really talked about taking the job of a paramedic from the start when they get that call and they say, you need to be this place quickly. Um, so we've got a couple of driving projects looking at emergency response driving, seeing how factors like cognitive load might impact that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, uh, I've got an honor student, Dan Malone, who's doing some work on that. Um, and a honor student, Justine Hamilton, who's doing some work on fatigue and paramedic driving, looking at, you know, what happens when you're really tired and, you know, you've got to drive at these really sort of um, tricky, tricky uh, situations. You know, you're able to sort of ignore some of the road rules if you're safe to do so, but you've got to try and get somewhere and get there quick sometimes. Um, how do you manage that when you're tired, when we know that things are a challenge, you know, processing information is a challenge. Um, you've got to do that safely and you've got to do it safely for a number of people, including all the other road users. Um, so, yeah, I think trying, trying to do, you know, I'm trying to keep my, keep my, keep my interests broad and be able to do lots of different stuff, but try and find, find areas we might be able to inject changes in policy because we might be able to provide some good evidence base mm-hmm. um, for that, for that sort of, uh, for that sort of change. No, that sounds awesome, dude. Sounds like some great projects going on there, Griffith, dude, and what could be coming out in the future as well for the research base. So I think that's decent to hear, dude. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exciting times. And yeah, like I said, I'm just, I'm just working with people I like working with. That's really good fun. Um, and, you know, you've met Sandy and Andy, who are um, very different, but very great characters. So um, people, people in that space are, are good fun to work with. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of kind of where I'm where I'm trying to head at the moment and try and make sure I uh just just start to put in space and then and then look at changing changing policy I think that's when you can start to make well if we can come up with good ways of training some of these skills training people to drive uh you know in in safer ways and by no means am I suggesting I'm the only person doing that there's lots of people working in that space but um if I can be working in that space and trying to contribute as well I think that's a that's a worthwhile thing to do Mm-hmm. I think that's the best place to be as well as you say Mark just like that application to real world and having been involved in academia for a number of years myself as well it's just like I see that from the research perspective there's, there's research going on that's you know it's nice from a research perspective it's like oh that's a nice question to answer but real world application does it have that carryover as well or is it just something it's nice to do from the lab um, so I think anything that feeds back into real world application for organizations or individuals to enhance their training performance is is fantastic to see as well so i think anyone who follows you or some of your research that's going on griffith will get a lot of value out of that going forward mate uh look yeah i i I was so lucky when i did you know when i met um ken scott brown when i was doing my undergraduate degree um him and uh ben tatler really sort of installed this idea of uh trying to understand behavior in, in in both of those domains is that it's really important that you know we, we can't neglect basic science basic science is so important um but that translation of basic science into real world behavior is is just um the the step that is messier noisier but really worthwhile because i think you know if you can find those things um you know when you've got someone sat at a computer screen in a really sterile environment um, you want to know whether or not that's going to change the way someone makes a decision when they come across a body and they're sort of trying to treat the body broken bones all that stuff and the stress is going and there's lights everywhere you know um and i think those those processes if you can really understand them both ways that's going to be going to be helpful for everyone no that's awesome mate. that's awesome um obviously everyone i have on that i'm always intrigued to know you know what they're engaging in for their own development 
So on that, could you just give us either a book, an app, or a website you personally found useful for your own education or development? Yes. Uh, do you know, I think one of the most useful things I learned to do uh, was learn to code. Okay. And learn to work data. I think that's one of the biggest skills that people should be developing. And I, I encourage it in all my students because I, I mean, I work in the, I teach in the research and statistics kind of area as well. But I think being able to understand human behavior, you really need to be able to be comfortable working with the numbers that they generate. And that can be from like, you know, simple numbers, like someone gives you a measure of their workload and tells you how much, how hard they're working um, or something more complicated, like a stream on a, on a um, heart rate monitor or, you know, the two dimensional movements of an eye, you know, of an eye exploring the world. Um, so to me, I think it's, you know, it, it's always a the ways of, uh, ways of understanding people through the data. And I think, um, I guess my my pitch would be for, for open source avenues for doing that. So being able to use software that's free, you know, I think um, there's some really great ways of doing um, data analysis out there. Things like uh, R, I do a lot of my work in. Um, there's a software called Jamovi, which was written by some researchers. There's another one called JASP. Um, there are free ways of, of analyzing data. I think, um, being able to be comfortable working in those spaces uh, where you're not really tied to, um, you know, you're not limited by the fact that you, the data is big and scary when it comes out, that you actually know you're going to be able to wrangle it and turn it into something sensible. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, working in those, in those areas is really, really useful. So in terms of things like websites, I guess the, the communities that support those types of things. So places like Stack Overflow um, is a website where, Anytime I've had a problem when I'm trying to learn to code something, I'll always go there and it will, there'll be people who've answered the same question I've got. Um, so, you know, I think those, yeah, we, we, I've talked a little bit about the, the community of academia and I think certainly the community of, of scientific methodologies is, is so, so important. Um, and anything people do to sort of support those would be, would be well, well worth going for. Nice, man. And it's definitely something I've seen more and more um individuals especially from the statistical standpoint going towards those packages like you say there um with uh, regards to r and i know uh, was it python matlab as well they have a big uh, big uh, uh programs for uh well program mm -hmm. packages for statistical analysis as well so it's interesting to hear um i'm seeing more and more guys from academia making that shift towards that as well i think um i think open source if you can get stuff for free then that really helps people kind of, it removes the barriers from people learning this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, that's, I don't think that's the most exciting answer I could have given. Um, but it, I think in terms of what's probably been the, the, the spine of my career, both in terms of um, my research, but also as an educator as well, as I think, you know, I, I, I think um, many students will, this, the thing that they learn in research methods and statistics is some of the most employable skills they'll learn so being able to have you know, toys to play with in that space in terms of the the different types of software out there i think is um is really useful for their own career development so yeah i guess that's probably the the, the not so interesting core to all of my stuff mm -hmm. there's some great textbooks out there some great books out there as well um you know the uh, looking and acting by ben tatler and mike land it's a really great textbook for um understanding vision and natural behavior um, a book called Eye Movements uh, or Movements of the Eyes by Roger Carp, um, who was a professor at Cambridge who I got to work with for a little bit, just 
one of the nicest guys I've met, um, really sort of like a, like a gentleman of science who was generous with his time, even though he was super successful and knowledgeable. And I was just a weedy little postdoc at the time. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, it's to, to me, it's sometimes it's the people as well that you've, you've met as you've gone through who have just given you opportunities. And sometimes that's just time is that they talk to you. And I, I, I like to think that uh, one of the things that we, we need to do as we're developing through academia is always give time to people. Um, you know, we're all busy, we're all doing stuff, but um, you know, I've certainly benefited from time and mentorship from people as I've gone up through. And uh, hopefully I try to do that for, for the students I work with as well. No, I mean, those are great, great resources there. You mentioned, uh, Matt, so like from first standpoint there, statistically uh, speaking, I, you know, I fell into the trap when I did my undergrad of just being like, oh, well, I'm just doing statistical analysis purely just because I'm doing a research project that requires me to do this. As you say, it's just like real world application. Can you actually mine your data? Can you make sense of it? And can you therefore show it to people, you know, who make bigger organizational decisions on, you know, the impact you're having or where you need to go next with regards to whatever process you're involved in. And I think that's huge for anyone going forward. I think it's something a lot more people should look into as well. And then, as you mentioned there, just uh, that that opportunities from either mentorship or being able to speak to people who are very accomplished in their careers as well. And um, it's one thing I found, and I've been very fortunate having the, the podcast, the platform for that, being able to speak to people who are doing fantastic things around the globe within the space who are, you know, as you mentioned, they're really busy, but also very, very gracious with their time to come on and speak about these topics that they're passionate about as well, when they could easily just be like, well, I don't have time for that sort of thing. Yeah, look, I mean, I think we're working in a nice time where academics should no longer be that sort of ivory tower. It really should be about talking about stuff and making sure that's available. Um, and, you know, that people, people know about what you're doing and they can see the value in it. You know, a lot of stuff is um is publicly funded now so you know just making sure that you can justify that and sometimes that's trickier you know the basic sciences certainly find it harder to justify um their research sometimes to, to people who don't have that level of expertise um it doesn't mean it's not worth doing sometimes that, that translation is a bit harder but i think you know at the end of it we're all, we should be be able to talk about this stuff and and, and make people understand why it might be worth their time and you you know what might be worth me spending my time doing this stuff is that maybe I can actually do things that are going to help you know if if you help paramedics make better decisions you help them assess a situation a scenario better then that's going to be a benefit to patients and that you know I like that's certainly my goal is you know try and do those types of things that you are going to possibly have like an impact you'll never see but will actually kind of make a difference um, down the line somewhere yeah yeah and um so going back to you what you're saying about the the, the data side of things, I think, you know, a slippery thing. And I think people can misuse and, you know, miss, uh, you know, use statistics are quite often, you know, um, challenging in their terms of the way that they're presented. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to convince people of an argument, um, data just shouldn't be the thing that you're afraid of. And, and like, you know, I actually don't, I think what the way that you said about it is not necessarily wrong is, you know, being able to, to analyze something and present it well is really just a tool to, to a message. You know, yeah. it's like if, you know, if Harpenter uses a hammer to build something, 
Um, the job isn't a hammer. It's just that the hammer is the point that they, the thing they have to use. It's the tool they use to build the, the cupboard. Um, and I think that's a really important thing is being able to translate human behavior into something that's a very clean and clear message um, through data is, is a really kind of key skill. Definitely. I didn't know I was going to talk about analysis so much, but apparently that's something I'm, <laughs> my head's in a bit too much. Uh, man, it's all good, it's all good, dude. I mean, those books as well, we recommended in the websites. I'll make sure I stick them in our show notes as well so anyone uh, listening can access into them as well, mate. Uh, Matt, it's been an absolute privilege to get sit down and chat to you, mate. I knew we were going to have a good conversation around some of the research you've been doing as well. So it's been fantastic to dive into that in a bit more depth as well, dude. For anyone who's listening who, you know, either wants to get in touch, ask you a little bit more about your research, potentially set up some collaborations there as well, what's the best way they can do that? I'm awful with social media, John. I hate it. Uh, I, I can't, I just, it, it's too much effort. So I am on LinkedIn, um, but if you just look me up, uh, you can send me an email and that's probably the easiest way to reach me. I tried Twitter. Um, you might find me on Twitter, but it's kind of not, you know, it'd be like last post four years ago. So yeah, just uh, look at me up on the Griffith website or something and send me an email if you're interested in just chatting about stuff. You know, I, I like talking. That's probably quite evident from, from today. Um, and I just like talking to people who have interesting ideas and thoughts and stuff. Awesome. So it's been, so thank you so much, John. I really sort of enjoyed talking to you both here and also conversations before as well. So really, really appreciate your time. No problem. Man. Thank you very much, man. I'll, like I say, I'll stick to those links in our show notes as well, along with your recommendations as well on books and websites. Dude. So thank you once again, Matt. Very much appreciated. Awesome. Cheers, John. Okay, guys. So that's another week's episode done and dusted. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it gave you some new information or made you think a little bit more deeper into some of your practice or into different topics. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. Um, it really means a lot to us, guys, and really helps bump up the podcast within the, the rating scales as well. And once again, please make sure you pass this on to your colleagues, your friends who are in the performance space as well, and just help get this message out. All right, guys, take care. See you next week.